This is Isaiah 43. It says, But you didn't call out to me, Jacob. You were tired of me, Israel. You didn't bring me lambs for your entirely burned offering. You didn't honor me with your sacrifices. I didn't make you worship with offerings. I didn't weary you with frankincense. You didn't buy spices for me with your money or satisfy me with the fat of your sacrifices. Instead, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your evil actions. I, I am the one who wipes out your rebellious behavior for my sake. I won't remember your sin. Summon me and let's go to trial together. You tell your story so that you might be vindicated. Your first ancestors sinned and your officials rebelled against me, so I made the holy officials impure, handed over Jacob to destruction and Israel to abuse. But now hear this, Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, the Lord your maker who formed you in the womb and will help you says, don't fear my servant Jacob, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. I will pour out water upon thirsty ground and streams upon dry land. I will pour out my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing upon your offspring. They will spring up from among the reeds like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will be named after Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. Tonight, I just want to go sort of verse by verse. Uh, some weeks we do that. This week, I think, is a bit more um, intense as far as it goes. I don't have a ton of things to say, although last week when I said that, it ended up being one of the longest sermons that, that we've done here in the last six months, on record anyway. Who knows about the things we haven't kept record of. But here, I just want to kind of march through this set of texts to pull out some um, points of application, really, uh, I will try my best not to do damage to the text. I don't believe that I am, but I really have in mind to pull out some application for us this week uh, that can hit us, hit us where we're at. Verse 22, it says, But you didn't call out to me, Jacob. You were tired of me, Israel. There's a word play that's happening here um, in the Hebrew, and you can see these verbs being repeated over and over. I'm trying to call attention to them here. But you were tired of me, or you were weary of me is the sense of it. Now the background to this is all throughout chapter 43, uh, Yahweh has been saying to Israel who they are, what their identity is, what the relationship that God has with Israel continues to be even in light of exile. Now remember, this exile was something that was of great significance for the Israelite people. They were removed from the land, they were taken to Babylon in captivity, and they had to sort of pick up the pieces and establish who they were now without the temple, without their land, with seemingly with God's broken promises to them. And all throughout this chapter, God keeps continually saying to them, don't fear, I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You are precious, you are honored, and I love you. Don't go immediately into that romantic sort of commitment, um, that sort of Jesus is my boyfriend sort of motif that some of us have brought into the church world, but hear that commitment, that complete and utter commitment that God has to his people, even in light of their rebellion and sin. He says, you are my witnesses. I am doing a new thing. In the text that we looked at last week, um, God says, forget about the old stuff. Don't just sit there and pontificate on ancient history. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Particularly in the text last week, he was restoring things so that my people might proclaim my praise. 
God is, in other words, demonstrating who he is and is trying to reestablish this relationship that might have been broken because of circumstance, because of suffering, because of punishment and judgment that Israel uh, and Judah had faced already. These texts, even right there, they still demand our attention and call to us in our own moments of difficulties. There's, there's things that happen here in this text when it talks about you're not calling out to me, Jacob. You're, you're in exile. You're kind of adapting to this new lifestyle. You're weary of me. It's almost as though the routines of religion have weighed down so much on this people that it's just become routine. They have become wearied with, with God and also with the things that God commands them to do. I want to share a little story with you. Some of you are going to know this, especially my students will know this. My wife obviously knows this. I don't even know if my parents know how bad this is. But I have some obsessive-compulsive tendencies in my life. Um, I think one of the triggers was, well, it's, it's in the blood, if I can go ahead and say this. I mean, Dad's shaking his head like, no, don't say it. Here it is. We have this, like, tile walkway and there's a a rug right in front of the door and every time dad would go upstairs I haven't seen you do it lately but dad would kind of go over stand in the rug look out the door and then go up the stairs almost like that routine of having to go touch the rug and then go upstairs that's going to seem mild compared to what I used to do back in the day I think this was triggered by um, a house fire that happened what was the year on that 96 okay so I was in 10th grade, and our house burns down. I remember being in 7th period study hall, which was a debacle, if there ever was one. But we were goofing off and doing whatever. And the secretary comes in and says, Josh, you need to come with me, which was weird. And I said, okay, why? Your house is on fire. And I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> I didn't really think anything of it. Um, I don't know. It's just when you're not in those positions, you don't really know how you're going to act until you're in those positions. And I remember pulling up to the house, seeing it on fire, going over to my grandmother's house, and a fireman came and said, what do you want us to try to get out of the house? And I said, my scrapbooks. And then I started bawling. The reason why I wanted my scrapbooks is because I wanted proof that I played sports and that I was pretty decent at them. So that when I told my kids that I played sports, I could say, here's the newspaper clippings. Boom. So it wouldn't just be sitting around the fire telling stories. You know what I mean? Can anybody relate to that? Okay. This house fire triggered like these obsessive compulsive thoughts in my mind where I I was kind of held captive by if I don't do this then something bad is going to happen again so I remember like we were living in a double wide trailer at this point and I remember going to the bathroom at night brushing my teeth going through all the routines and stuff that we go through every night and there was a rug in the bathroom learned trait I pretty much put my feet straight together would jump out of the bathroom, not touching in the tile, hit the light switches, had to get all three light switches down exactly at the same time, and then land with my feet perfectly in line like this. If I didn't do that, I'd go back out there again. Got to jump out the bathroom. Nope. Jump out the bathroom. You know what I mean? Anybody, anybody relate to me here? No? Okay. Okay. It gets worse. So then I, if, if I did that okay, then I would go into my bed, and I would lay down, and I'm still kind of messed up about my alarm clock, although the iPhone has helped a little bit. This was old school alarm clocks where it's like you hit the button, and then you can hit the snooze bar to see what time it's set for. So I would turn over, slide it to on, check the time, slide it to on, check the time, slide it to on, check the time three times. Then I would put my head down, turn it to the left, tap the top of my head to the top of my headboard, one, two, three, and then I was ready to sleep, exactly like this. And if I moved, I would have to start the whole thing over again. I would have to start the whole thing over again. Like if I had an itch or something, I went like this, go back into the bathroom, wash my hands, jump out of the bathroom, go back in, check, 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 tap, 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 right? 
routines. You should have seen me on the baseball diamond too. I had a lot of routines. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was bad. I'm pretty convinced it's a, it's a character trait of most major league baseball players that you have to have a little bit of obsessive compulsive disorder and it's just a lot of superstition. Um, but here it's like these routines that I was going through um, can be transferred into our, our religious life too. At times it feels as though God is another routine and any attempt to love him or be committed to him is wearisome. Our prayers, for example, completely suggest, in most cases, this idea of routine. I've talked about this before. It's like the dinnertime prayer. For some of us, it never wavers, and it stands the test of time. For some of us, the, the prayers that, that we pray, maybe in our bed at night or in the morning as we rise, they're very similar. And at times, that can be a good thing, but at times, it can just be routine. Um, our devotions. I put that word in quotations because I don't like referring to reading the Bible as devotions. I think that we demonstrate our devotion in, in other ways, although reading the Bible is important. But that, at times, can become a routine, not only a routine, one that is wearisome, one that feels like it just lives right here on our shoulders or above our head, and it's like you're walking around. Today, I was getting ready to watch an episode of The New Girl. For some reason, I'm like super emotional right now. I think it's like some sort of what do you call that? Yeah, yeah but what did when, when, you say about Porter the other day? Sympathy. It's like sympathy emotion that I'm having with Kate as she's dealing with this pregnancy and the hormone influx. But I'm like sitting there watching New Girl crying. Today I was crying at I don't, I don't know, A, I don't know why, and B, I don't know why I'm telling you this again. <laughs> I don't know how this relates. But our our devotions, that's just why, because I wanted to watch The New Girl, and in my mind, I could hear something saying, read your Bible instead, read your Bible instead, read your Bible instead. And it was like that classic church guilt and shame. It's like, I don't want to read my Bible right now. I want to watch New Girl. I want to cry at some episodes that are just hilarious, you know? But there's these things that sometimes we feel that weight of them. Our commitment to God at times is wearisome to us or feels like a burden to us. I hope some of you are connecting with this. I'm not sure if this is just me or where I've been in the past, but I think a lot of times the way that we do church and the way that we talk about Jesus, it becomes task-oriented. It becomes something that we do instead of something that we, that we are, if I can pull that. And just when we think about passion, I often, I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher. I've been studying the Bible for 13, 15, almost 15 years since high school. And at times, it's just like, it's something that you do. It's not something that you're passionate about. And I feel as though um, when we talk about God, we're right here where Israel is. They're, we're not calling out to, to God, A, because of our circumstances, because of what he's put us through, quote unquote, but also because we're just tired. We're weary. We feel as though God is a burden to us and the life that we might want to live. And this is the context in which uh, we see what's happening here where Israel is saying, God, you're wearisome. I don't want to continue to do this stuff. The, in, in response to the God who created all that is and to whom Israel owes not only its biological but its political existence. Remember, this text in Isaiah is very politically oriented. It's talking about Babylon as the ruler and about Cyrus who's going to come in and deliver them. But Israel is responding with indifference and with complaints that God is wearisome. And I'd like to pose the question, are we any different? 
here I'm just jumping right in and taking this text and, and bringing some application to us. Are we wearied by God in our life, or is God that flame of passion that keeps us going, even in the midst of, of difficulty? God says, in, in response to this, there's no relationship, and the signs that there's no relationship are very clear. He goes in verse 23, you didn't bring me lambs for your entirely burned offering. You didn't honor me with your sacrifices. I didn't make you worship with offerings. I didn't weary you with frankincense. See the turn there. Israel says, we're wearied by you, God, and God's saying, I didn't weary you with stuff that you have to do, but you didn't buy spices for me with your money or satisfy me with the fat of your sacrifices. Here, we're dipping into a very historically rooted set of texts where it's appealing to the liturgical routines of the ancient Near Eastern context. Yeah. The liturgical routines are, yes, you offer sacrifices, but beyond that, outside of Israel, there was this thing about feeding the gods. In order to have that relationship be sustained, you would present food to the gods. There's a really cool story of this um, in the Apocrypha called Bell and the Dragon. It's like an addition to the book of Daniel. I want to read just a couple verses with you uh, from this book. But This is Bell and the Dragon. Basically, when the king dies, Cyrus the Persian becomes his successor. This is right in our time frame because Cyrus is the one who eventually defeats Babylon and lets Israel leave Babylon and go back home. Okay? So this is right in our wheelhouse historically. Now, Daniel was a, a confidant of the king and was held in great esteem, um, greater esteem than all his friends. Verse 3, now the Babylonians had an idol whose name was Bel, hence the name, Bel and the dragon. And every day they used to lavish on it 12 bushels of fine flour, 40 sheep, and 6 measures of wine. So what they're doing is they're feeding the gods. So Bel is in the temple, and they present him, her, it, whatever, with all this food every day. What's happening in Bell and the Dragon, the story is, the priests were going up underneath the floorboards, more or less. There was a secret trapdoor entrance, and they would go in there and eat all the food to make it seem as though Bell was actually consuming this stuff. Daniel calls him on it, um, has this great little murder mystery, except no murder, but like this mystery where he like puts ash on the floor, and they like leave their footprints, and Daniel says, ha-ha, you've been in there eating all of the sacred food. Okay, either way, what's happening here is they're feeding the gods. In a sense, Babylon is more committed to their god than Israel is committed to their god. Israel, in a sense, has, has given up. They don't bring lambs. They don't do the sacrifices. They don't do any of this stuff. And even beyond that, verse 24, you don't buy spices for me. Another way of phrasing that would be like, um, sweet cane, and you don't satisfy me with the fat of your sacrifices. God, in a sense, just wants something to happen in order for this people group to demonstrate that they're still committed to him. And what's interesting in the book of Isaiah is there's this contrast. In this text, God wants sacrifices. He wants the sweet cane. He wants the fat of the animals. He wants those things. But earlier in the book, it seems like he does not want those things. And I want to try to play this out a bit. So here, in the beginning, God says, I don't want your sacrifices. In particular, he says, hear the, the Lord's word, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to, to God's teaching, people of Gomorrah. And here what, what God is doing is he's associating Israel and Judah with Sodom and Gomorrah. Like one of the archetypal images for sinfulness. Um, 
What should I think about all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm fed up with an entirely burned offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't want the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from you, this trampling of my temple's courts? Stop bringing worthless offerings. Your incense repulses me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of an assembly. I can't stand wickedness with celebration. I hate your new moons and your festivals. They become a burden, that word again, that I'm tired of bearing. When you extend your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even when you pray for a long time, I won't listen to you anymore. You keep your sacrifices. You keep your songs. You keep your festivals. I don't want them anymore. They make me sick. That's in Isaiah chapter 1, and now in Isaiah chapter 43, it's like, yeah, I want some sweet cane. I want, I want some fat of the animals, you know. It's almost like God is kind of fickle going back and forth here. But what's happening is something underneath the surface. The same idea is happening in the Psalms here. Uh, verse 9, I have no need of a bull from your stalls or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine. Um, jump down to verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. I don't need you to feed me. I don't need your sacrifices. Okay, so it's almost like there's this bipolar sort of thing that's happening here where he's saying, I don't want your sacrifices in the, in the later half of, of the book. He's saying, yeah, actually I do. What God didn't want and doesn't want, what had become burdensome or exhausting to him or sacrifices and or ritual symbol, symbols offered by a disqualified Israel, a people whose hearts were not there. We talk a lot about that heart in worship. Matt Redman really popularized this about 10 years ago. I was about to bust out into the song, but I won't. I'll hold back. Charlie's begging me. Okay, so what God wants is Israel to call out to him. He wants visible, dramatic, generous acknowledgments of allegiance from Israel. That's from Walter Brueggemann. And then he wants their hearts. As I was thinking about this today, this is in the back of my mind as I'm up there strumming my guitar and singing songs. And I just hear in the back of my mind, take your songs, take your offerings, they make me sick. I don't want them because you're so far from me. We have a privilege in this place and beyond of praising God for who he is. At times, I believe that we live in the midst of routine. We live in the midst of being wearied by God and that affects what happens even here in this room. Our voices become a bit softer. Our hands don't extend anywhere. There's no sort of outward symbol that we're committed to God. Now here, I'm not trying to go into this um, diatribe about what true worship looks like, but what I am trying to do is explain or at least begin thinking about if our worship, corporately and individually, looks like what God wants it to look like, that sweet cane or the fat of the animals, or if it's the stuff that he just is detested by. These, in a sense, are the signs of a relationship. Kate and I celebrated our five-year wedding anniversary the other day. And there was signs of the relationship there, some flowers, some cards, some you know, 
kind words, dinner, a meal. Like there was things that we did to celebrate that. If I had not gone to the store and gotten the card that Kate doesn't need or got the flowers that she may or may not even enjoy, I still haven't quite figured that out after five years. If you're a flower type of girl or if you'd rather have, yeah, they're really nice, she says. <laughs> but I would have rather had a CD or, you know, I mean, not, it's, the flowers is the symbol of me trying, if nothing else. What are the symbols, the flowers, the cards that we give to God that demonstrate that we're trying? For a lot of us, it's, it's those paltry, I sinned again, hope you forgive me again. That's the communication. That's the sign of the commitment. But it, beyond that, it doesn't go too much farther. In Mark 14, we have a story of um, kind of, of where we might be. In Mark 14, it says, while he was in Bethany, that's Jesus, reclining at the table in the home of a, wo- a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were indignant, saying to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. There's a sign here from this woman, an extravagant sign of a perfume worth a year's wages that's broken and put onto his feet to anoint him. It's a symbol of some sort of commitment, some sort of relationship that Jesus in this text was honoring. I don't want to heap up the guilt and shame on us here, but what do we bring? What is it that we bring to the table? Would God's words to us be similar to that of Isaiah in chapter 1 where he says, all this stuff that you do makes me sick because you are so far from me? Or is the stuff that we do similar to Isaiah 43 where it's like we're so wearied and we're so tired that we don't even do anything anymore? Or are we here in Mark 14 where it's, we're breaking open the expensive perfume and we're, we're giving it to Jesus? Israel, in this text, it says God is, they're not doing these things that God wants anymore. Instead, you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your evil actions. Get the turn there? Israel is the one that's wearying God with all of their evil actions. I don't have a lot to say here about this um, particular thought. It's setting up this contrast of you don't call out to me. You're wearied by me. You don't offer any sacrifices. You don't do anything. Perhaps some of that was being in a foreign land and maybe not having the courage to, to do that in a foreign land or just not having the motivation to do that. He says, you've, just, you've burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your evil actions. There's a turn here that's beautiful and I hope we see the significance of it. In verse 25, out of nowhere, it doesn't fit because 26 through 28, it goes back to the same old, like, you guys aren't getting it. But in verse 25, it's just this one line wedged in there that's gospel. I... I am the one who wipes out your rebellious behavior for my sake. 
Earlier in the chapter, he was sending Babylon, or sending someone to Babylon for their sake. But here, this is for God's sake. He says, I won't remember your sin. I, I am the one. Poetically, here we have anoki, anoki, who, which is like this I, I. It's like you, you can't even miss it. This is God saying, I'm doing it, not you. I will do it in spite of you. I will do this even though you're so far away from me you don't even care anymore. I'm going to do it. What am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to forgive you and I always will forgive you. If that's not an important point for us to sit on for 20 seconds, I don't know what is. We live in the world of guilt and shame and everything just lays here on our shoulders and we just kind of carry it around and we forget the teaching of the New Testament says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And perhaps we live in the world where God can't forgive us because this guy can't, or this girl can't, or my parents can't, my boss can't, my teachers don't, my spouse won't. I mean, we have these moments of identity crisis where we say, I've done this thing too many times Maybe the forgiveness is going to run up. I, God says, I do this for my sake. There's like this, this thing that happens in a relationship where at times you do things for the other person. But there's also this weird like catch-22 where when you do something for that person, it's almost like you know that it's going to come back for you at some point in some way. It's like this kind of just give and take. But here God is saying, I do this for me. And if you think about it in context, he's not getting much out of the deal. He's not even getting any sweet cane. But he does this for his own sake. Verse 26, it gets back into it. Summon me and let's go to trial together. You tell me your story so that you might be vindicated. And then it's like there's silence in the text that's quickly um, kind of alleviated, and God continues to talk. Your first ancestors sinned, your officials rebelled against me, so I made the holy officials impure. I handed over Jacob to destruction and Israel to abuse. It's like that, that little snippet in verse 25 of goodness and grace and mercy and forgiveness is gone, and now God is saying, say something for yourself. You want to take me to trial? Take me to trial. What's your story? What's your case? You got nothing. And if you take that one step farther, we don't have much of a case either. Although in many instances in our life, we would love to take God to court like Job in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty and persecution, in the midst of sickness, death, destruction, divorce, bankruptcy, bills. I mean, all these things, we want to take God to task. But in this text, he's saying, you can't say anything. I'm in control of all things. I'm in control of you I love you, you're precious, you're honored. Whatever you're walking through, whether it be water or fire, I'm right beside you. Then there's this other turn, one more turn again. This is God saying, present your case. There is no case. And now he goes into this. But now hear this, Jacob. I have chosen you. Don't fear. I have chosen you. I will pour out water upon thirsty ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your descendants. They will spring up from among the reeds like willows by flowing streams. This one's going to say, I'm the Lord's. That one's going to call himself and write on his hand, the Lord's. So it's like there's this turn again. It starts out saying, you don't talk to me anymore. You're wearied by me, but I will forgive you. You want to present a case? Present a case. 
You don't have a case, but I have chosen you. It's like God keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, answering all of the issues that Israel is dealing with at the time. So this is how we conclude. Very simply, I have a series of questions here that I think bear some consideration. Number one, are we weary with religion? I, I'm not scared to use the word religion. It's kind of chic in the evangelical world to not use religion and talk about relationship instead. Um, but there are things that we are to do. There are things, practices, rites, rituals that we observe. Are those things wearisome to you? Is singing in this room wearisome to you? Is coming up here these few steps to receive the body and the blood of Christ, is that wearisome to you? Is praying the same trite prayers wearisome to you? Is spending time with this people around this fake notion that we're rallied around the cross wearisome to you? Do we continue to call out to God or have we just stopped because of circumstance, because of past failures because of a lack of believing that he can forgive us continually or that he loves us or that he's compassionate towards us or with us in the midst of suffering? Have we just given up? Like in verse 22 where it says, you don't call on me anymore. Do you offer any signs of your commitment to God? Here, home, in the car, wherever. Is there anything that you do that God could say, that's the sweet cane? That's the fat of the sacrifice. And maybe even one step beyond that, what would that even be? It's interesting that in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about stuff similar to this, he surprises people. It's almost like the things that, that they did just because were the things that they were doing for Jesus without thinking, I'm going to give this guy a cup of cold water because Jesus wants me to. It's almost like so ingrained in them that that's just what they do. Could it possibly be that, that we're missing those opportunities because we're burdened by who God is or because we don't have that right frame of mind? Are you aware of God's continual, almost stubborn forgiveness of you through Jesus? Are we aware of that? Do we accept that? Is it something that we, can, that we can understand or grasp or even try to? What we deserve, we do not receive, and perhaps this should inspire thanks. I think at the end of the day, in this text, and even in Isaiah 1, where it says, get your sacrifices and get all that stuff out of my face because I don't want them anymore, I think all God is wanting at that moment is somebody to get it. Somebody to understand. In our context, somebody to say, I'm forgiven and I'm a child of God through Christ. Somebody to say, I am forgiven in the midst of continual, perpetual failure. I am honored. I am precious. I am loved. Perhaps he just wants somebody to say in the midst of suffering and tragedy and trials, whatever we're walking through, whether water or fire, that we can say God is with us. In this moment, I mean, Isaiah's landed on pretty thick. And for its original readers, I think there was a strike of maybe like a twist a knife sort of thing, like we've got this all wrong. We've totally misunderstood this scenario. 
This might seem odd, but I hope in this moment we can get a little bit of that too. We've become so accustomed to this thing that we do, to this person up here talking, that it's like it doesn't even phase us anymore. We've become so accustomed to preaching and teaching and singing and all these things that they have no bearing in our lives anymore. I want you to hear, as we close, I want you to hear again and again and again, you are precious, you are honored, you are loved. And Christ demonstrated that for us in giving up his life on the cross. That sounds trite and it sounds wearisome, but don't let it. Understand it, acknowledge it, and let that shape who you are and let that be the impetus from which you give thanks regardless of circumstances. I stand here fully aware that the things that you guys go through are big and they're hard and they're difficult. I also stand here with full conviction that the God that we serve is aware and he cares and all of that is trumped through the commitment that we have to his son. I hope, I hope, I hope that there's something that we're doing that can be that, that offering to God that he accepts. I hope, I hope, I hope that there's something that we can give to him, not because he needs it, but because he deserves it, because he's worth it, because there's something about honoring the one who creates us and forms us and says to us, you are honored, you are precious, you are loved.